Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hello there, everyone. Welcome back as we continue our walkthrough of the book of Mosiah, and more specifically right now, the record of Zenith that we find in Mosiah 10. Remember that we've just launched into Mormon's first flashback in the book of Mosiah, and Zenith has led a group of Nephites away from the land of Zarahemla into the land of Nephi, where he has struck a deal with King Laman that allows his people to put down their roots in their ancestral homeland. That was not, however, as sweet of a deal as Zenith had hoped for. And after 12 years of industry and prosperity, King Laman, afraid that these Zenophites might be growing too powerful, begins to attack the Zenophites. In this first battle, Laman bites off more than he can chew, and Zenith is able to lead his people to defeat the invading Lamanites. And Zenith gives all the credit to the Lord. So that pretty much brings us up to speed. This chapter may not strike people as very doctrinally heavy, there's quite a bit of focus on battles and history and so forth, but we have to be careful not to narrow the scope of scripture. The category of scripture covers all kinds of genres, and we have to go into our study with that understanding that the word of God can come in a lot of different forms. All right, let's get into this chapter with verses one through five. Zenith begins to establish the kingdom again. I take this to mean that the Zenophites are able to give daily life the necessary attention and on a kingdom-wide scale, Zenith is able to focus on infrastructure and governance and so forth. Crisis like the war that they've just completed tends to be an attention hog, and for good reason. The metaphor that comes to mind here is that of rock climbing. There's this rock climber named Alex Honnold who specializes in a type of climbing called free soloing, where he climbs up big walls without any protection, no rope, nothing except for shoes and hand chalk. Obviously, with this type of climbing, the margin of error is incredibly small, even a small slip of the foot at the wrong time could result in catastrophe. I once listened to an interview with Alex where he said, and this isn't a direct quote, but it captures the point. He said that he never gets to the point where he's afraid of his grip failing. The way I remember him saying it is, I never free solo anything above a seven in difficulty. Everything is well within the range of his ability. He also says that he doesn't free solo anything under a four. In other words, there's a danger on both ends for Alex. If it's too difficult, then he's in crisis and at risk of failure. And if it's too easy, he can get complacent and lose focus, and that negligence could be just as deadly. Zenith has seen his people through the first crisis. That was above a seven. But he doesn't want to keep his kingdom in a state of war. He also says, though, that in their prosperity following the war, they didn't forget what happened. So he caused that there should be weapons of war made of every kind, that thereby I might have weapons for my people against the time the Lamanites should come up again to war against my people. Complacency is one of the risks of prosperity, and it's a form of blindness based on the assumption that because things have been going well, they will continue to go well. Perhaps it's an even greater risk in the modern era where we have become so accustomed to pressing a button and getting what we want, without any awareness of the complex systems that have to function in order to provide that sort of prosperity. This coronavirus situation has laid bare a lot of the vulnerability of those systems, and should be a reminder to us 
of the Zenith-like wisdom of using times of prosperity to prepare for the times of crisis. This period of post-war prosperity lasts for a long time, 22 years in fact. This brings us to about 175 BC, and Zenith makes sure that his people are not idle during this time. In verses 3-5, through we get a brief look into the Zenithite gender roles during this period of prosperity. This might not seem all that interesting to many people, but when women are mentioned in the Book of Mormon, I see it as a moment to slow down. For one reason, it's because it just doesn't happen that often. And another, particularly in the case of the Zenithites, but it's also true of the Nephites in general, that gender roles matter. If we remember way back into our look at Jacob, Jacob quoted the Lord, who said that one of the reasons that he had led the Lehites out of Jerusalem was that the Lord didn't want his daughters to be subjected to the same mistreatment that women have had to experience throughout history, and that that mistreatment of women, if not corrected, would be central to the destruction of the Nephites. And we're going to see that warning fulfilled with the Zenophites eventually. He said he caused the men to till the ground and the women to spin and toil and work and work all manner of fine linen, yea, and cloth of every kind, that we might clothe our nakedness. Things are pretty stable here, and the work of women and men is seen as contributing to society. That won't last for forever among the Zenophites. It gets pretty bad, but for now, their continual peace lasts for 22 years. I've said this before, but when an author, Zenith in this case, gives us a phrase like, we did have continual peace in the land for the space of 20 and 2 years, we need to look for what happens at the end of 22 years, and in verses 6-10, through 10, Zenith fills us in. King Laman dies and his son inherits his throne. Beware of transitions of power. They have the potential to be especially chaotic. And we're told, Laman's son began to stir his people up in rebellion against my people. Therefore, they began to prepare for war and to come up to battle. But part of Zenith's preparations included sending out spies to watch for the Lamanites. And these spies alert Zenith of the Lamanite preparations for war. Zenith's first move is to hide the women and the children in the wilderness. The men are armed, both old and young. This isn't a professional army. They're not trained soldiers. These are farmers who've had to be gathered in from the surrounding regions. No doubt some of the old men had fought in the Benjamite Wars and the early Zenithite Wars decades earlier, but most of these men had grown up in continual peace. And Zenith organized them in their ranks, every man according to his age. And we can probably safely add, according to their experience in war. Zenith pauses before we moving on to the story of the actual battle. In verses 11 through 18, we get some comparisons between the Zenithites and the Lamanites. In verse 10, we were told, And it came to pass that we did go up in the strength of the Lord to battle. In verse 11, Zenith notes that the Lamanites knew nothing concerning the Lord, nor the strength of the Lord. Therefore, they depended upon their own strength. We've gotten mixed messages from Zenith about the Lamanites. Initially, Zenith didn't want the Lamanites destroyed because he found good among them. He then called the Lamanites a lazy and idolatrous people. Now, in this section, he really doesn't hold back. He says, yet they were a strong people as to the strength of men. They are a wild and a ferocious and bloodthirsty people, believing in the traditions of their fathers. We'll pause there. This sounds a little bit more like the classic Nephi narrative that we've heard for hundreds of years. So here's the question. Zenith describes himself early on as overzealous. Today we might use the word naive. 
Now the older Zenith is looking back after decades of war, and it's left up to us to grapple with which one is right. For some, this might be an easy answer. The older Zenith has the experience. He has, he has years of trying to protect his people. He has so much evidence to draw from. And look, maybe to some degree that's right. Younger Zenith was probably a little bit naive about his ability to change a centuries-old tradition of hatred between the Nephites and Lamanites with just a treaty. But he got pretty darn close at times. They had one violent incident in 34 years, and apparently the only reason they went back to war was that a new king took the throne amongst the Lamanites. That doesn't sound like the fault of the people. The Lamanites didn't just all of a sudden become wild, ferocious, and bloodthirsty just because there was a new king. And what about his initial observations about the Lamanites? Was he just flat out wrong when he observed that there was good among them? and that they didn't deserve to be destroyed? Should he have just gone along with his first Nephite leader who wanted to violently conquer the Lamanites? This is one of those moments when we have to remember that scripture isn't always normative. That is, it isn't always saying this is the right way to do things. Sometimes scripture is descriptive, or this is just what happened. And sometimes scripture stories can be cautionary. The best lessons from scriptures are rarely scooped just off the surface. They require us to look at the bigger picture, to dig deeper, to identify patterns, and to be active readers and critics who are led by the Spirit. Of course, Zenith is the good guy in his own story, and we have no reason to believe that he's lying to us. But we also don't need to think that this is just a Disney cartoon. Whenever we watch a new Disney movie in my home, my boys, who are still very young, ask me right away who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. And that's fine if you're seven, but that's not a mature way to think about scripture. And listen to where Zenith takes us next. They were a wild and ferocious and a bloodthirsty people believing in the traditions of their fathers, which is this, believing that they were driven out of the land of Jerusalem because of the iniquities of their fathers, and that they were wronged in the wilderness by their brethren, and that they were also wronged while crossing the sea, and again that they were wronged while in the land of their first inheritance, and after they had crossed the sea, and all this because that Nephi was more faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. Therefore he was favored of the Lord, for the Lord heard his prayers and answered them, and he took the lead of their journey. He goes on to say that the Lamanites were angry that Nephi had taken the rule out of their hands, and that he took the brass plates, and thus they have taught their children that they should hate them, and that they should murder them, and that they should rob and plunder them, and do all that they could to destroy them. Therefore, they have an eternal hatred towards the children of Nephi. For this very cause had King Laman, by his cunning and lying craftiness, and his fair promises, deceived me, that I have brought this people up into this land, that they may destroy them. Yea, and we have suffered these many years in the land. So, what's the problem between these two people? It's a 400-year-old grudge. Really, people? Now, I know that Zenith is saying that this is why the Lamanites hate the Nephites, so it's their fault that they can't get over it. But Zenith isn't free from this. He betrays himself a couple times in this story. Remember that he starts with I, Zenith. He wanted to be the next Nephi. He wanted to leave the land of Zarahemla to reclaim the original kingdom of Nephi from the Lamanites, and he couldn't even retell the Lamanite conflict narrative that we just read without interrupting it with his own conflict narrative. Before you bail on this episode, now, before you bail on this episode, because I'm pushing back a little against the traditional understanding, 
I'm not saying that Zenith is wrong. I'm saying that he's human, and so is King Layman. I'm saying that it's a little ridiculous to fight over a 400-year-old conflict, and as humans, we're just about as ridiculous today as they were back then. Conflict works in cycles, and when we're caught in those cycles, whether as individuals, within families, or even as nations, we tend to interpret everything as more evidence of why we are justified in being in conflict, and then we respond to that evidence. And in responding in ways that further the cycle, we provide the same evidence to the other side. The Lamanites are treating the Xenophites as robbers because they are Nephites. The Xenophites are treating the Lamanites like they are a bloodthirsty people because they are Lamanites, and round and round they go. At a certain point, somebody needs to lay down their story or their need to be justified. Otherwise, the conflict will continue to work as a closed loop. We'll actually see some examples of times when this Nephite-Lamanite conflict is disrupted, and it comes through creative, spirit-led discipleship. Ammon and the sons of Mosiah and the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are going to be the prime example of what this could look like. A lot of people thought that the sons of Mosiah were naive to try and go and preach to the Lamanites. They actually got mocked by the Nephites, but they refused to perpetuate the conflict. And we see the fruits and the transformed relationships that result from their efforts. Finally, I think we have to push back a little on Zenith's characterization of their, quote, suffering for these many years in the land. He's just finished telling us that they had 34 years of peace that was only interrupted by one violent conflict. Those two descriptions don't seem to comport. Be mindful of how you tell your conflict stories especially the ones where you feel the most justified. I'm not saying that you're wrong, but I think the Book of Mormon is here in part to remind us that we are also human. Okay, let's wrap this thing up with verses 19 through 22. Zenith is pretty transparent here. He straight up tells us that he is using the classic Lamanite narrative as well as the traditional Nephite response to stimulate his people to go to battle with their might. Zenith's people go up in the strength of the Lord, the Lamanites go up depending upon their own strength, and they contend face to face. The Zenithites slay the Lamanites with a great slaughter, even so much that they did not number them. That's it for the second battle. The Zenithites go back to their business as usual, and Zenith turns his kingdom over to one of his sons, hoping that the Lord would bless his people. That's a little bit of a bittersweet ending. We know who his son is. It's King Noah, and we know the wickedness and misery that awaits the Xenophites. But before we like get all in despair, Zenith has planted some seeds. It'll take a while, but those seeds are going to begin to grow in this next generation, and will absolutely redefine Nephite civilization for at least 100 years. Remember, the Book of Mosiah is where Mormon is introducing us to his main characters, the church and the Nephite government. And in the next few chapters, we're going to get defining stories for both. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom.